Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Paul Bernardo being moved from a maximum security institution in Ontario to a medium security institution in Quebec, where we now understand there's a large percentage of that prison population that is sex offenders. So Bernardo is probably under less of a threat from the general population in that prison than he would be at another maximum or medium security institution in, uh, in the rest of the country from the general population. And I said to my friend Scott Newark yesterday that I have concerns because Bernardo is following, perhaps coincidental, perhaps not, following the route taken by his former wife and co-criminal, co-murderer, Carla Homolka who was moved from a prison in Ontario to a prison in Quebec where they had the infamous girls' night in parties. And you know, the French and Mahaffey families, whose daughters were kidnapped and murdered by Bernardo and Homolka, became very good friends of mine. And I've said this before, Debbie Mahaffey asked me to moderate the memorial service for Kristen and Leslie, which I did in a church in Burlington, Ontario, on a beautiful summer afternoon. And I will never forget that day, and the people who stepped forward, and what we heard. And then now Bernardo has, seems to be following the trail of Carla. Scott Newark is a former Alberta Crown Prosecutor, former Executive Officer of the Canadian Police Association. Scott was also the Vice Chair and Special Counsel for the Ontario Office for Victims of Crime. Scott, I can't shake it. Yeah. No, I I know what you mean. I mean, it it just feels like CSC is going down the path again of controlling things, getting them out of the spotlight so that they can, you know, do what they want to do, which I think worryingly may mean some kind of release. Yeah, and, and it's not inconceivable that release is at the end of this trail for Bernardo, we would not have expected it, although we, initially, we would have not have expected it for Hamolka, and they didn't tell us That's when right. she was released. That's right. We yeah. found out because of a great report, a great reporter's work, that she was out and living comfortably in Montreal. So it's just a very, very uncomfortable reality, and we need to get at this as a country. Well, it's, not, it's- an uncomfortable reality. It's a potential threat to public safety. Yes, it is. And it also re-traumatizes the victims' families. That's what struck me so much in some of the cases that I was involved in. Um, it was the terrible toll that this took on people's lives. And, you know, we're all just supposed to look the other way. No. I'm going to say something that I said yesterday that you remember, because I think it's relevant. When I was informed by a guard at the Kingston prison that Bernardo was having conjugal visits. Yes. And I called Correctional Service Canada on the air, and I asked them whether this was taking place. And the spokesperson said, Mr. Bernardo is entitled to the rights of any other prisoner, any other client, actually. I call them clients. In the the, um, offender populations of Canada, it was so abhorrent to hear that Bernardo would have rights protected, and, and, and the same as any other individual in the prison system's rights. 
Yeah. Really well, troublesome. Very troublesome. That's what struck me from an early time on with Correctional Service of Canada is that it, it, it has its own we-know-best culture. Mm-hmm. And especially in relation to the its relationship with the parole board, they're the big brother. And i got to tell you, I, I don't know if you remember back, it was decades ago, when uh, Ole Engstrup was the uh, commissioner of Correctional Service of Canada, and he introduced the 50-50 strategy, which is that he had decided that he wanted to, just himself, he had decided that it was the best thing for um, you know, uh, in his view, that there'd be 50% of the prisoners in custody and 50% out, which also meant, you know, just ignore the law, which said all the criteria. And, I mean, I must admit, it got leaked to me by somebody inside Correctional Service of Canada because the staff were horrified, but it was a number of... Um, it was a strategy with a number of things that could be leveraged so as to justify releasing more people. And one of them was to increase the number of offenders uh, with lower security uh, categorizations, which, you know, guess what? Uh, So that's the kind of thing that that really does concern me, because I think that's really at the core of a lot of the problems uh, within, and, you know, especially as we were dealing with repeat offenders, uh, is that culture of we know best from Correctional Service of Canada. And it's Canadians who pay the price. Yeah. And there is precedent for child killers yes. being released from our prison system by the parole board and by the CSC. Let's talk about a couple of other things that have to do with justice. One of the major sure. issues right now is bail reform. What's your uh, sense yes. of bail reform? And we have uh, a number of lawyers in this country saying that this may be a violation. What's being suggested? Reverse onus on bail could be a violation of the Constitution and charter rights. Well, first of all, uh, never forget that the uh, criminal uh, defense lawyer's job is to uh, uh, protect their client from criminal responsibility for their actions, okay? So never forget that. I admit my bias as a former Crown prosecutor, but um, actually uh, I've seen the uh, the bill. I've gone through it. It's not particularly uh, uh, long, Um, and although I almost never agree with what the Attorney General David Lametti says. Uh, I did on this instance when all this discussion was going on, and it was really encouraging to see it from provincial premiers and ministers, police organizations saying, you know, we need to deal with this reality of repeat offenders. Um, That was encouraging to see that coming together because it's been years since that's been the case. Uh, But I agreed with the uh, federal attorney general when he said it's more complex than just bail reform, and he's correct. Uh, I just wrote a piece that's in Frontline Security magazine that details all of that. Uh, This is something that's been going on for a long time, because you and I, it's what got us going in our first discussions like 30 years ago. That's right. One of the realities of our criminal justice system is that a disproportionately large volume of crime is committed by a disproportionately small number of offenders, okay? And when you deal with that reality, you get, either by policy or operational means, you get significant public safety results. And that's what we've got going on here right now. And yes, it is true that one of them uh, actually does deal with people who are just on bail, but it's also a whole other number of areas in our entire criminal justice system 
uh, where uh, people are not we're using this one size fits all, and that's that's wrong, and that's not part of what the culture of our criminal justice system was. So there are definitely changes that need to be made, and I think the uh, the lawyers who are expressing their concerns about the um, Bill C forty eight. Uh, should maybe sit down and read it a little more carefully because it's a very, very carefully drafted uh, bill, and you can see that the bill was drafted in such a way as to strongly support its uh, constitutionality. You know, you and I, uh, when we first met in the early 90s, spent a lot of time on justice issues, great, great amount of time. Yeah. And the Canadian public was very much involved, and we, we got into it with... Uh, Brian Mulroney was the prime minister at the time yeah. and, and successive uh, federal justice ministers and attorneys general. And because the population was involved, it drove the governments to make changes exactly that it, were more yeah. representative of the needs of the people. And then justice issues, Scott, seemed to slide off the radar over the next couple of decades. And now we find ourselves back, and maybe it's the catalyst is a story such as the transfer of Bernardo where public opinion starts to become involved again and governments have to pay attention again. Uh, can you, in about 60 seconds, because I want to talk to you about China, you alerted about China years ago, um, in an, uh, wearing another hat that you wear. Could you just remind us about Noah's Law? Oh, sure. Um, that's a uh, case that was uh, out in Alberta. I got connected with the family. It was a repeat offender who was a, uh, a child sex offender as well, too, and he'd been uh, released. He was placed, when he was on his convictions, uh, he got placed on the sex offender registry, which, by the way, uh, was originally created by uh, Ontario, and the federal government finally adopted it. And, uh, it's, you know, there's legislation that deals with it. And uh, he was uh, on the, uh, the registry, and there were public police notifications about it, and... He then moved from Edmonton to a town to, in the, to the southwest, and there was no public notification given about the fact that he had moved. He moved into an apartment building, a young couple with a child who had no idea that he was there, mo happened to move into the same building, and it turned out fairly shortly afterwards the guy abducted the young mother and uh, raped and killed her and then uh, killed the, uh, the young son. And so the family said, like, well, how come we didn't know about this? And they put together and they worked on some things, and they've drafted uh, legislation that will change the rules and make it such that the public consideration is taken in. And I believe they're in Ottawa next week. There's a bill in the Commons and the Senate that's going to be introduced to deal with that. Yeah. Really, really uh, clear-thinking and hard-working people. Let's get to the number one issue politically, and uh, I think the number one News issues still in this country, China's interference in Canada. Scott Newark is back with us. Uh, Long-issued concerns about Beijing's activities, in a, in, in, including uh, uh, his uh, um, duties as former Alberta Crown Prosecutor and Executive Officer of the Canadian Police Association. Scott was Director of Operations for the D.C.-based Investigative Project on Terrorism and a Policy Advisor to both the Ontario and Federal Ministers of Public Safety. So, Scott, you've been uh, ringing the alarm bell about China for some time. How do you, how do you assess what's, what's happening now? Well, I think uh, we're waking up to uh, reality, would be the, the way that I would uh, best summarize it. Um, as you know, I was a uh, uh, 
uh, accident, it's a funny story, but I was uh, accidentally I had become a biker prosecutor back in my days in the 80s, and I became in, you know, aware of sort of the reality of organized crime. And I remember some knowledge, not very much, uh, in relation to uh, triads, organized crime groups out of China. And I uh, came to Ottawa in 1992, and we were doing policy work at the Police Association. And I think it was in 1996 I got a phone call from a friend of mine who happened to be a liberal cabinet minister. His name was David Kilgore, and uh, he was a former Alberta prosecutor as well. And he said, uh, listen, I've uh, been hearing some stuff. Oh, and he was the, the minister or associate minister for uh, foreign affairs for Asia Pacific. And he said, I've been hearing some stuff about these reports about uh, Chinese espionage in Canada. And I've met with uh, two officials who wrote them. One is a guy named Brian McAdam. He was an intelligence officer with the uh, Foreign Affairs Department. The other guy was uh, a guy named Gary Clement, who was an inspector, and he was the international liaison officer. They both worked at the Canadian Embassy in Hong Kong, which in those days was independent. And he said, it's really complicated. He says, you're pretty good at sorting out these complicated things. Can you come in and meet them? And that was in 1996, and I did, and wow, these guys had done just tremendous research identifying all of what was going on, and it, it had a focus at the first stage on how they were uh, using um, or abusing our immigration system to get criminals, triad members, into Canada, and uh, there were real concerns about it, and I got involved in a whole lot of the stuff, uh, you know, brief politicians, things like that. But uh, in uh, 1997, it went the next step, and our, the RCMP and CSIS did a joint uh, project. It's called Project Sidewinder. It was uh, led by a guy who I became friends with, uh, Michel Junot Katsuya. Yeah, he's been a guest story, on this program. Yeah, and you may recognize that name. And he Former CSIS operative. Correct. He did a uh, report called Project Sidewinder that was brilliant because it laid out for the first time, it assembled all of the details, and it wasn't just about triads. In fact, it was what the Americans subsequently, in a report called the Dragon Lord Project, they described it as the Trinity. It was three elements to it. Triads, yes, uh, but also government espionage, and also their penetration of the business services, business activities in Canada, all to advance the interests of China. Okay. And this was and 25 way, to 30 years ago. By the way, on the day that they were meeting to decide the next steps, the order came from the Prime Minister's office, shut it down, destroy all documents. Who was Prime Minister at the time? Mr. Chrétien? Yes, Jacques Chrétien. What a surprise. Okay, and um, just so you know, I'm, I'm going to presume, given your show, that all of your listeners have appropriate security clearances because <laughs> uh, the Sidewinder report that was ordered destroyed, given their security clearances, they can find it on the Internet by Googling Side Project Sidewinder. Okay? <laughs> okay? It's actually survived, and it's up there. It's missing one page, but, amazing. you know, so be it. Hey, uh, hey then, look, I, I only have a minute here. Let me ask you this question. You worked very closely with American security yes. and anti-terrorism experts. How will the U.S. be interpreting what's going on in Canada over the issue of China's interference in Canadian affairs. Well, how, how, does, how, does the, how did the Americans see this? The Dragon Lord report described 
the, uh, the threat of uh, Chinese interference in, in all of the sectors, uh, and they uh, were quite critical of Canada shutting the whole thing down. So um, they're, trust me, they are keeping uh, an eye on it, and including on the political controversy and the obvious, let's be honest, the obvious conflict of interests in having this guy, David Johnson. And I've read his report, and look, there's some good details in it, but there's an obvious conflict of interest with having this person responsible for doing that. How is it all the rest of us can see this, but neither Mr. Johnston nor Mr. Trudeau can see it? Uh, the arrogance that is Ottawa. And let's not forget, when Mr. Chrétien left office, who did he immediately start to do business with? Uh, well, frankly, uh, even before then, when he left after John Turner won, he went to work for Gordon Capital, which was run by Richard Lee, who was the son of Lee Kashing, one of the triad leaders. And he made lots of money. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend. For most of us, crime is something we see on the news. We never think it could happen to us until it does. Loved ones are gone, and for the survivors, the scars will never heal. I'm Nancy Hickst, a senior crime reporter for Global News. And on this season of Crime Beat, I'll take you inside some of the most serious crime stories I've covered. Season six of Crime Beat is available now on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, and all podcast platforms.